Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live. We are in Ottawa, Ontario, and we have a, another Skype episode for you today. Uh, you know, I've been back in Ottawa now for a while, and we've been trying to set up these interviews and different shows, and, and just by happenstance, the first couple that we're running have been ones with people who aren't in Ottawa, which is always fun to be able to talk to people around the country. And we have a really great show today with Trevor Harriet, who is currently the writer-in-residence at the Regina Public Library. He has a very extensive catalog of work that he's done. The book for which you might know him, uh, or, or that most of you may have read, is River in a Dry Land, A Prairie Passage. He has some other stuff, including his new book, which just came out, entitled Towards a Prairie Atonement. And I had the chance to talk with him via Skype, all the way from Regina. Trevor, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Sean. I'm very pleased to be here. So, as, as regular listeners of this podcast will know, I very much love the prairies and Regina, having had the pleasure of spending a couple of years out there. And it seems to me that in, in the scope of your career, you have really taken a great interest in the prairies and written almost romantically uh, to a certain degree about the prairies. So for you, where does that strong and deep connection to the prairies come from? Well, I guess it's because I grew up here, uh, you know, def definitely guilty as charged. <laughs> I, I do sometimes get a little romantic in my approach, and uh, I guess I don't really want to apologize for that. I think we have to feel some love for the places we live. And, uh, you know, I early on in my life as a naturalist and environmentalist, I kind of tagged onto this idea of bioregionalism that you, you know, like Gary Snyder, the poet and uh, Zen poet and former beat poet used to, used to say that the best thing we can do for the earth is to just stay put. That's his two-word answer. If anybody asks Gary, what can we do? He always says, stay put. And so I've tried to make a real connection to the place I live and to my, my piece of the prairie, this watershed I live in, which is the Coupel River Valley watershed. My first book was about that. Pretty well all my other projects have been related to the prairie in general, but often to this particular piece of it, the, the Coupel watershed. So I, I just I think it's it's a sane way to try to uh, connect to uh, the land and make make sense of our history and our passage in a landscape. Hmm. And that's interesting because you know you, you talk about that. For me, when I was out there, it was the sky. Um, I know Montana, the license plates say Big Sky Country, and when I was out there, I just I couldn't get over the sky and the power of the sky even more so than necessary i know the sort of the sky fits into the landscape but you know to me it was almost what was on the ground wasn't nearly as consequential as watching the sky um, well and that part of that sean is is that we've annihilated what's on the, what's on the ground <laughs> you know, we, live, we live in the most altered landscapes on the planet here where i live on the regina plains it's like a little eco district subset of the eco region and less than 1% of the native cover is left. Like 99% right. of it has been plowed under and given over to intensive agriculture. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got other parts of Saskatchewan where there's 20 to 30% of the native prairie left. And uh, that's often what I concentrate on in, in the stories because the Regina landscape is basically a basket case. 
Yeah, and as you drive around too, you you get a sense of that as you drive around. Like, sort of, the further you get away from Regina, the more I don't know natural it seems. If that's a fair way to put it. Yeah, and the irony today is nature in in the Regina area right now has come back into the city because we've created sort of a little urban forest here, and now we've got we've got more wildlife in the city than out on the <laughs> cultural land around it. But yeah, there are, there are still some wonderful gems of uh, natural landscape in in the province, and people trying to find a way to fit their culture and economy into it. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the one story I like to tell people about. You know the the Regina landscape is. I was uh, when I was there. It was my second year. I was in my advisor's office for a meeting, and his office was on the fifth floor uh, mm-hmm. of Campion College. And my parents were coming out, and I said, "Well, what can what can we do?" And he said, "Well, you can take them over to the mountain to watch the sunrise." And I said, "What mountain?" And he pointed out his window at this yeah. hill that yeah. was built from the the dirt that they took out to build Wascana Lake and and he's pointing at it and says, Oh, the mountain. And and, well, we were higher than it was on the fifth floor and he's pointing at it. And like, and that's a really good example, not only the lake, but then this this sort of hill that they built um, of a, of a fake manufactured landscape that isn't native to anything. True. (laughs) Um, You know, the the landscape around here is very flat, always was very flat. (laughs) It, it, it's to me, it's it's much easier to take when that flat landscape is rippling with the life of you know 100 species of native grasses mm. and antelope and burrowing owls and things. Like it right. is in some areas, but around Regina, it's just all wheat, canola, and lentils. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so to get into the the book a little bit towards a prairie a prairie atonement, uh, you know, as you talk about, you've written about a lot of these issues for a long time. What was the motivation for this book? Well, to be completely honest, Sean, I thought I was writing a different book. I, I'm working with a photographer uh, named Branimir Jetvai uh, from Saskatoon. He's a naturalist, too, and an excellent grassland photographer. And we had decided we were going to go around to the little bits of grass left in, in Canada, in particular in Saskatchewan, and do a book we're going to call Islands of Grass with his photos and my essays, right? But in the process of doing that, we came across this human story and I'm, I can't resist a story where you know human cultures especially indigenous cultures intersect with the mess we've made of, of our native landscapes and we came across it in this one community pasture that straddles the Saskatchewan Manitoba border it's called the Spy Hill Ellis community pasture it was one of the federal PFRA pastures prairie farm rehabilitation Rehabilitation Administration that used to be managed by the federal government. And just under Stephen Harper was one of the environmental programs that he got rid of. And so we're in this transition, right, of all these pastures. So we went to visit there and discovered that uh, uh, a Métis community had been living on the pasture before it was made into a pasture. It was just a, a piece of grassland and one of the best ones in that part of Canada. But when the federal government came along in the 1930s because of the drought and everything that was going on there and the, the land was basically blowing away on hot winds, they they came in uh, with the support of the federal government. The rural municipality guys came in and told the Métis people, 250 Métis people living at, in a community called St. Madeline, told them that they were all going to have to leave. Some of them didn't take it seriously. And uh, eventually, they were forced off, and their houses were burned, 
and the story goes that some of their dogs were shot. So it's another one of those embarrassing episodes, but it's just got an interesting intersect with our whole trajectory of history with First Nations and Métis people on the Great Plains and how that knits together with the ecological issues that we are now facing today. So, so you know, if I'm hearing you right, it's it's sort of this idea of, the, you know, colonialism that isn't just with people and isn't just with the land. It's sort of how the two intersect together and, and the ramifications of that. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess... <clears throat> because I think about this and live with that all the time, I, I don't really see the divisions between culture and nature. Mm-hmm. I've never been an environmentalist who thinks that nature has to be entirely set aside from human activity. I think that's the, the concept of wilderness without people involved is a misnomer and has kind of led environmentalism down garden path in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I see them intersecting all the time, but this this kind of episode, I guess, just gave me an opportunity to look at the Métis way of living on land, which, you know, they were trying to hold on to a remnant of it, even in the 1930s, so it was interesting, because we often think of the Métis as, the Métis um, land systems, land tenure, kind of vanishing all at once in 1885 right. at Batoche, or uh, and certainly at the Red River in 1869, before that, but um, you know, in some ways, they tried to sustain it into the 20th century and sort of hold on to what they always called the old ways. You know, if you look at the interviews of the people who who were moved off of that St. Madeline community and the community pasture, uh, they'll often say, "Well, we were living there because we knew it was a place we could go to. Nobody else, the white people, didn't settle there, and we we could continue to live the old ways." And what they mean by that is, outside the you know colonial dispensation of um, turning the land entirely into private little plots, quarter sections of 160 acres that people have exclusive ownership over and everybody lives in, you know, quite far from each other on little homesteads. Right. Yeah. right. Well, I had, a, I had the pleasure a few years ago to be part of a, a project with Nicole Saint-Ange, um, who, who does a lot of Métis research. And I, I was just at these meetings to take notes, certainly not for any level of expertise in these issues because, well, I have none. Uh, but but I got to uh, learn about this. It was this uh, really about this one family and the use of the land and, and sort of family, not in terms of bloodlines, but larger community relationships. And they were able to trace this family as they essentially went back and forth across what is now the Canadian-American border and, and the seasonal land usage and all this kind of stuff. And it was really interesting uh, to understand the different conceptions of land use and land ownership as understood by the Métis versus a Western system yep. of, of land ownership and how colonialism then reshaped not just the, the, the relationships between the people, but also the physical layout of the land. Because now when you fly over Saskatchewan, uh, mm. as many people you know say it's one of the, a flyover province, um, you can see the li- sort of the lines sort of separating the farms or separating fields and all that. And of course, you know, those aren't natural. Those were put there by human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's very clear when you fly over the prairies just just how we have imposed a land tenure system mm-hmm. that is so completely foreign to the you know the fluid reality of nature. Right. And uh, the Métis were 
of course, people who need who knew, they knew they needed private holdings and private property. They lived along the classic river lots at, at the Red River. They always had their their piece of, of private property at the riverfront. But even there, I think there was it seemed. And I, again, I'm not an expert. I'm, I'm I'm not Métis, but from my understanding, there was a sense of there being uh, you know a community sort of input into even the way. Your, your private land is used. But beyond that, there was something they called the hay privilege right behind it, another two miles of land that wasn't technically theirs. It wasn't owned outright, um, but they had right of first use for haying and grazing as long as they followed some community regulations. So it's a good example of the commons kind of working and functioning because it, there were some com- community-based regulations that everybody followed. If you if you hate it too early or grazed it outside those regulations, you could be told you've lost your, your rights to that and they would revert to someone else. Then beyond that hay privilege of two miles, there was the great wider prairie commons that people also went out to hay at certain times. But again, they had guidelines as to when that haying could occur. Now, this is back in the days when agriculture was a lot simpler, more of a peasant subsistence sort of a thing. But I love to you know, just speculate or wonder about what would happen if you take – that sort of community ethic and community approach to the uh, you know the interests of, of the land, and then see how it would evolve and change over time, and adapt to more, more modern agriculture systems. Would we have would we have subdued the land quite as totally as we have now if that had been somewhere in the mix? Hmm. You know, hmm. obviously settlement was going to happen any any way you look at it. You know, the white. Our European settlement is, was was coming and was unstoppable. But if we had found a way to respect the Métis land tenure systems, land governance, and if we still could could go back to that, there, you know, because we're looking at issues today of land use that always come come down to a kind of a conflict between exclusive private or corporate rights with land, which is usually short term interest, and on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the long term community interest in the well-being of the land. Those things are always at conflict now. I mean, even in, with the bigger issues like climate change, that's right. really the basic conflict. Uh, with with conflicts over water and resource use, what, the way we grow food, the way we you know, use our forests, the way we gather you know, or, or, or extract fuel and transport fuel, those are all classic conflicts between the sort of binary approach of private short-term interest, uh, and then the long-term community interest, which always seems to be losing out <laughs> these days. But I I think with a more sophisticated kind of a, a fluid system where you have a community, the community interest somewhere there as a third partner in the middle, mitigating that or, or mediating that, there would be a you know more of an opportunity to balance those and uh, – resolve some of these problems and the indigenous voice is always left off the table in our big land use questions it still is all for all of our talk of reconciliation you know there's very very much certainly out here there's a lot of resistance to you know really sharing the resource revenues for example from a resource rich province like saskatchewan mm-hmm. with with first nations people right and and i will say there's sort of i don't even want to call it a cottage industry in ottawa because i think it's more than a cottage industry where we have a lot of historians working in this town doing research for lawsuits that have been waged against the government uh, mm-hmm. by First Nations or uh, 
by the government against First Nations, and largely around these these land issues and in terms of the the resources and all that. And certainly that you know that's not the way to move towards reconciliation. No, it isn't. Um, is to be suing each other all the time, d- despite the fact that it puts a lot of my friends, you know, in, in the employed category. <laughs> but you know, it, it, there's certainly better ways to to go about it. And and one of the things that I found interesting in in reading up about about your book is is in this case you uh, went out and and worked with the the Métis community and in particular a, a Métis elder, right? And and yeah, Norman, trying to tell Norman the story. Curry. Yeah, um, we learned pretty quickly, or I found out pretty quickly that um, you know there were still people who were descendants of that generation. Uh, who, who lived at St. Madeline and got moved off. And I found one of them who happens to be really uh, the world expert in the Métis language of Michif. Um, and he works at the University of Saskatchewan here, uh, well, in Saskatoon. So I got a hold of him and because uh, he lives out in that area, not far from the St. Madeline area, and he goes back and forth to Saskatoon. So I found a time when he was going to be there and then uh, went and spent a full day walking with him around the old site of St. Madeline because the interesting thing is this is still a really uh, important place culturally and spiritually for the descendants of the St. Madeline people who were moved off. Uh, they still bury their their dead there in a, a beautiful little cemetery that's kind of hidden away in the middle of this you know, 100 square kilometer community pasture of Aspen Parkland Prairie. So you, we, we drove on to the property and uh, went through this gate. They've got this, they, they tend the cemetery very nicely. This steel um, kind of wrought iron, I guess it would be, sign over top of it that's just, that says St. Madeline. It, it to me seemed significant to me. It didn't say St. Madeline Cemetery because to them it's still St. Madeline. And uh, they have celebrations there every year. Uh, just just to stay in touch with it as as their spiritual home, uh, St. Madeline days kind of a thing, like back to Batash days. And just this fall, I found it after the book was published, I heard heard about this just uh, through the grapevine, that um, see, there used to be a church and a school there too, but the bell from the church got moved off to a local First Nations community. Uh, they're sort of connected to St. Madeline called the Gambler Reserve. And the bell was installed at a church there. And that church has now um, gone empty and kind of become derelict. And so they got the bell and they constructed a, a steeple for it and put it up at the site of St. Madeline uh, and uh, installed the bell. And they had a ceremony and uh, Métis are very very religious people, and so they had uh, uh, Catholic priests out there and had a, a mass. And uh, you can see in the in the photos uh, on Facebook that there's all kinds of elders and people who come back and are feeling very proud of that place. So it really is a place that they connect to and still feels they still feel um, a strong link to. And I, I admire that about our indigenous people. Uh, you know, they're they're often so often criticized, and this is such a racist part of the world here in Saskatchewan, and people just not even trying to understand or get to know Indigenous people, but they are always so connected to their places and have so much respect for for the, the spots that were important in their history, and they, were, they know where their, their uh, you know ancestors are buried, and those places are very important to them. Is there a sense of loss to with within the community about what happened or 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 is there any sort of resentment or anger or you know how has the community 
you know, you talk about how they continue to maintain the cemetery and maintain a connection to it, but is there any lingering um, sort of ambiguity or anything towards the the government for having forced them off the land the way they did? Yeah, well, uh, like everything where human beings are involved, there's some complexity here because there, it needs to be said that there were a couple of the uh, families there who actually did have full title to their land, and so they were actually given uh, a piece of land uh, as an alternative to place to move and land. But by far, the majority were moved on to two uh, just sort of constructed villages that were really just stuck along the road allowances nearby and uh, they lived in in pretty dire straits there for a, a long time um so there's a mix of responses you'll some families just kind of shrug their shoulders and say well that's past is past um but i get the impression and i hear from some people that you know uh they still do feel the that, that this was a wrong and something that that needs to be addressed yet it's not just an interesting little moment in, our, in their history um the Métis are, are still living in all around that area. It's uh, that whole region of southwestern Manitoba, southeastern Saskatchewan is kind of the epicenter for the Michif language, which is, although it dwindled down, is kind of going through a little renaissance thanks to people like Norman. There's more people learning it. He's got a Michif on the go a phone app that he uses. Oh. <laughs> you know. So uh, there, there it's very much a living community with a strong sense of their history and belonging. And yeah, I think there are there's a lot of people that I've spoken to who would like to see uh, something go f- come come from this. You know, especially now we're at we're at a kind of an opportunity because the land is kind of being passed because the federal government under Harper got rid of the community pastures. It's been handed back to the to Saskatchewan and Manitoba, and this particular pasture straddles the provincial border. So there's an opportunity for the Saskatchewan and and Manitoba governments to call the Métis communities in. Who have have the connection to that place, and ask them for some guidance. You know, just, right. just sort of throw it open. Say, what what good thing could we all do together? You know, they, without, they don't have to make any particular promises, but just why not have the discussion and say this land was really important to your people. At least three thousand acres are known to have been used by the Métis in, until 1938. What could we do forward together, Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, government? And uh, the Métis associations. What could we do here that would honor that past? And who knows? Maybe even provide a little bit of uh, much-needed revenue for the Métis mm-hmm. associations. And it could still be grazed as a community pasture because these landscapes need to be grazed by cattle. We don't have buffalo anymore. They still need to be grazed. There's revenue to be made from that. Um, there's the conservation element that's very important. I know the Nature Conservancy is working hard in Manitoba with this pasture and another one really close to it, the Ellis Archie Community Pasture. And uh, so there's an opportunity to work with conservation community, with government and Métis organizations to do something really great. What that would be, it's not my place to say. I'm not Métis. But I think we should give the, the Métis, Machif-speaking people of that region an opportunity to to lead the discussion and uh, ask some some dream some big dreams and ask some big questions. Yeah, and this seems like, and me not knowing what is happening in other parts of the country, but it seems like this could almost set a precedent too, where we have this land that that the federal government has sort of given back now to the provinces, and we have this community that is still there, uh, that Mm -hmm. still has a tie to the land. Like To me, this, this strikes me as a real opportunity where 
situations in other parts of the country, if this is done properly, it can be pointed to as a way forward for a lot of folks. Yeah, isn't that true? That's that's exactly what occurs to me. Again, it's not my place to say what should or should not happen to this piece of land, but boy, you can sure see that there could be something really good come out of it that would be a model for helping to resolve all these big questions of how we use land and resources and how we re-indigenize our our uh, response, you know, our responsibility under treaty. You know, even though the Métis technically you know, did not sign treaties, we're all treaty people, we're fond of saying that now. What does that really mean? You know, right. uh, how does that how does that play out in terms of our responsibilities to share the land, govern it well, and and take care of it for future generations so that we're not just extracting the wealth as private people, private corporations, and moving on, leaving a slag heap behind. Right. Yeah. Now, now one of the things that I've heard from people who, who either don't believe in the whole colonialism thing or, or don't think that reconciliation is necessarily a top priority. One of the things that they argue is that, you know, for thousands of years before white people showed up in North America, tribes were constantly exchanging land or fighting over land and that land didn't really have this static ownership. And that when we talk about reconciliation, what, their argument is, is well, we're doing it from the moment in time when Europeans showed up and saying, well, this is what it was like when Europeans discovered this place. Well, this discovered is not the right word, of course. Um, when Europeans showed up. And then uh, if we're going to sort of revert back to sort of the land ownership at that time, well, why wouldn't we go back even further and further? And, and this is sort of the the argument that is made against uh, reconciliation and yeah. so I, I'm not I, I think I know what your answer is going to be but but how would you <laughs> respond to that line of thinking wow that's it's a complicated one but that's I, basically that's just blowing smoke um, <laughs> trying to find a, a way out a way to obscure the whole thing right um, uh, you know I, and then you hear arguments that well Aboriginal people used to take land from each other uh, too in in battles and now uh, we've had the white people came along as a new a new tribe that de defeated them in battles and got possession of the land so where do you start the reconciliation and that sort of thinking it, it's ridiculous I mean we 100 years ago or less we didn't allow women to vote either like the world changed our, our we evolve uh, in our ethics and in our understanding we didn't know that we were destroying the planet 100 years ago either Right, and and we didn't know that human beings have always been changing the environment. We're really just discovering that, including Aboriginal people. You know, of course, made changes to the, to the world that they lived in, and possibly some some animals went extinct in the early Pleistocene. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, these these things are just ways to kind of divert and put uh, find some way to distract from the core moral imperative here. To, to right some of the, some of the wrongs that we are all benefiting from as the privileged uh, beneficiaries of colonialism. It's, yeah. And one of the things too that I find is that is also a way to redirect any sort of personal responsibility. And mm -hmm. this notion that yes, I I myself have never forced a First Nation off of their land. That is not something that personally I've engaged in. But 
I, I feel as though it's everyone's responsibility to address that it happened and to to work towards the reconciliation in some way that goes beyond a tweet uh, or like a Facebook post, like in some sort of tangible way. And these sorts of arguments are used to to sort of push off any personal connection, personal responsibility that people have to it. And that, I think, is where it becomes dangerous. And the one thing that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission really, or the thing that I took away from it is that it, it, it's a, it has to be a joint effort by everybody yeah, across individuals the country. Yeah, yeah, individuals as well as institutions, you know, churches, schools, and governments, but also individuals. Uh, in, the, in the book, towards the end of the book, I, I tell the story of a, <clears throat> a woman who owns a piece of land. Uh, it kind of came into her hands without her even really wanting it uh, along the the uh, north the South Saskatchewan River north of Saskatoon in in right in the Batoche area and it was clearly it belonged to a Métis family and she she found that out and really got interested in it but she's an example of somebody who is trying to discern a way forward in, and respond to the calls to action in the TRC with this land she owns. And so she has begun the process of meeting uh, some indigenous elders and speaking to them about the place. She's tried to find ways to open the land up and share it. She's starting to think of a sort of a succession plan for the land and how to how to protect it because it's you know it's a really nice piece of um, natural landscape right along the, the river and so I tell that story because to make that point that a lot of us own own land we don't need to think of TRC as a threat to our wealth and possessions right. we don't need to, to look at this as a zero-sum game game where uh, Aboriginal people have everything to gain and uh, non-Aboriginal people have everything to lose. I think that's part of what's behind that blowback that we're seeing is people are seeing it as a zero-sum sum game. Uh, you know, because this this woman, for example, has gained so much in the richness of her life in in doing what she has has done, and I think most people will find that you know. I, <laughs> Aboriginal people are not going to come along and say we want we're going to take your land. We want your land. That's that's just not going to happen. We're going to continue to have private property. I would imagine, you know, non-indigenous yeah. people are going to continue to be mostly in charge, but we can go a long way toward bringing them into the circle of our decision making on the big questions of land use, and I think we would all benefit from some of their uh, approaches to, you know, the community interest in land, the long-term interest in land, because that's sorely what we need in a world that is facing issues like climate change and ecological degradation going forward here. We need to find ways to build social capital and make our land use systems more resilient and uh, more long-term sustainable than they have been. And, and you know, just like you say, that social capital. I mean, if you if you know your neighbors, if you respect your neighbors, if, you know, you have this, this real strong community vibe, uh, you're less likely to do something that negatively affects them. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Yeah, that's just good for everybody. Um, well, it is. Yeah, we we see this in uh, farmers in on the prairie all the time. They're always bickering over one thing or another about what the other guy's doing. You know, the neighbor's draining draining his sloughs, and it comes onto my land. Or, you know, the neighbor's dog got out and chased my llama in the pasture, and you know, <laughs> those sorts of things because they don't have much for that kind of real community. We talk big about what we have as community, but really, we throw that word around very loosely. 
Mm-hmm. You know, community, I think, is when you all have some mutual interests that you're working on. You've got some shared skin in the game, and you you will benefit and lose sometimes together in a, in a tight knit community. Right. We have we have instead uh, these little you know pockets of villages and so on, but they're really depots. They're serving the extractive agriculture and uh, oil industries around us, and it 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 fights and mitigates against or militates against um, any real community bonds happening. Or far, the farming world is struggles to to maintain any sense of community outside of maybe a few times with branding time or harvest time. Then I suppose it kind of reconstitutes for a short period. Yeah, I mean, and not to be, not to, you know, come up with a flippant example, but, you know, the WestJet model, right? They, they, you know, everyone's an owner of the company. Everyone has a mm-hmm. stake. Everyone, therefore, wants to go the extra mile, or at least that's the way they brand themselves. And everyone's in it together. And, and that, that that's a really good model, I think. Um, and that's why certain, that's why businesses give those sorts of options, stock options, sort of ownership options to people. Um, yeah. Now, yeah. The, the other thing that, that, strikes me in talking about this is is Ian Mosby um, and his work on the residential schools and the nutritional experiments at residential schools that, that he found in his research. And one of the things that he's talked openly about, uh, and I think very powerfully about, is coming to that story as someone who is not a member of the Aboriginal community. He was never really involved in, in researching residential schools before he came across this sort of stuff. And, and now he's there and he's done a lot of research and a lot of work. And how initially there was, I don't know if there was an internal tension or an internal struggle in, in being the person who is sort of out front for the media, at least telling these stories, uh, given that he wasn't a member of the community. It strikes me that you would have been in a similar position uh, in discovering this story. And and I'm just wondering how you addressed those issues for yourself. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good question. I think it's good to talk about this. Um, I had a lot of qualms before I sat down and put my pen on paper and started writing this. And I often have had moments of doubt and fear when I try to, you know, I find myself looking at a story that involves uh, Aboriginal people or Indigenous people, and then trying to find a way to to write it. And you know, it's it it can be difficult. There's been there's been so much going to the bridge. There's been so much pain and suffering. And and now with the uh, truth and reconciliation process, there's a lot of heightened interest in it. And so you have to be kind of prepared that some people may may say, you know, what are you doing telling this story? And that's I guess that's fair enough. I, I'm not going to try to defend myself in any particular way other than to say, well, it's it's also the story of non-Indigenous people and of the history of this place and the way we have settled it. Because I, I dig into, you know, the fur trade history here, 200 years of it going right, well, exactly 200 years, going back to 1816. So it was the 200th anniversary of the Battle of Seven Oaks this year. So, you know, that's that's my history too as the beneficiary of that uh, in that by clearing the plains, going through the fur trade era, removing the Métis from the land is, is what allowed the settler culture that, you know, supported me and my grandparents. Uh, so it's, it's my history too. And so I have an interest in telling the history. Now, I made sure that I didn't just blunder in and uh, tell the whole story without 
the permission and participation of a Métis historian and elder. So that's why I, I connected with Norman Fleury and was very grateful that he uh, was willing to talk to a, an, a white guy about this and, and share his story. And of course, he was tentative. He didn't know who I was from Adam, but we got to know each other. And over the over time, he, he became comfortable and uh, he actually I got him to write a, a um, afterward to the book which explains some of that his his uh, s- sense of I guess trepidation at first and then and then coming to see that that the project I was at was a, a worthwhile one that, that he could support I mean First Nations people have been burnt so many times by writers and journalists and, and Métis people too who want to come on to their land or meet them in their community and take away a story for their own benefit. So, yeah, as a writer, you're always afraid of that, either doing that uh, unconsciously or or even just being accused of it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this this story, I just thought, you know, I'm a person who really cares a lot about the native uh, pasture land, the uh, prairie lands, and uh, it just seemed like a, a way to connect history to the way we've destroyed the the habitat and to what it, what we have to look again at what we have remaining of native grassland and to f- help people to understand that there's a reconciliation there as well and, and it's part of the way we reconcile with aboriginal people is to reconcile how we removed them from the land and their long-term connections to it. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that all over the planet some of the, the landscapes that are suffering most are the landscapes where we have de-indigenized the land and taken First Nations or a- Aboriginal people off, you know, whether it's rainforests in South and Central America or the Great Plains here. Right. Now, in in talking, though, about the, the trepidation that, that uh, Norm may have had in, in approaching this project, once you guys started working together, Given the different backgrounds that that you're both coming at this with, was there ever any? I don't want to necessarily use the word tension, but you know, differences of opinion or, or things that you had to resolve when when looking at this story. Um, well, we definitely, I got him to look at um, the pages because he's his voice is throughout it. It's a small right. book, but it's on his voice is on many of the pages of it, and so I had him. You know, I don't always do this with informants, um, but when it's a, a, an indigenous person, I always do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wanted to make sure, you know, because of that power relationship that's still there, I wanted to make sure that I was respectful as possible yeah. and get his get his approval. So there were a couple of things I don't even remember off the top of my head what they were. They, they were they weren't major, but that there were moments where he felt you know it should be this wording or that wording. One of the things was he want he and I remember this now. He wanted to. He's a very gracious guy, and he didn't want to make it sound like it was all bad, all negative stories. The the connection, the um, relationships between settler people at that time in the, in the 1930s and before, and and Métis people. He wanted to to make the point. So I added this in that you know it's not always bad. There were there were lots of moments where uh, they helped one another out, and uh, the Métis in particular were really important for the earliest settlers who came to the plains and just didn't know how to survive in such a cold landscape and with this with the climate and the, the land that we have here. So uh, the Métis had been here for a hundred or more years in those, some of those places, and so were very welcoming and uh, helpful. Uh, so he wanted to make that point, right. and and I added that in. The other the other point he wanted to make clear again, which I thought was very generous, was that you know the, this is just he said this is just my version of it, 
Um, you could speak to other Métis informants who would probably tell you that, hey, it was fine because we got, we got a really good piece of land. Right, the right. ones that actually the ones that actually owned their land outright and had their taxes, back taxes paid, uh, they, they benefited and uh, are still uh, fairly fairly well off in that in that area. So he 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 was encouraging me to, to visit those people and talk to them. As it as it turns out, I didn't I didn't feel that that really fit the narrative, but I did make sure that I mentioned that and and that put those words in or, or let those words come from Norman in the narrative. And I guess that brings up a larger methodological question too, in terms of you know, you, you've been open about how you you went to Norman and, and he's a historian and and you know so methodologically in putting this together from just the historian perspective, um, mm-hmm. is, is it really? I don't want to say sole sourced in, in, in that sense, but you know what exactly was the methodology uh, apart from that relationship with Norman? So he was my only in-person informant on St. Madeline. However, there was a book of interviews done uh, by Canon Victoria Zelig in the 19, early 1980s, I believe. And they, did, they interviewed as many surviving people from the St. Madeline community as they could to get first-hand accounts of what life was like there. How they made their way, in, you know, they they cut brush for local farmers and cordwood, and you know, and uh, sold a bit of this and a bit of that, and had their, had a, a couple of cows, you know, and so on, just describing their life, uh, and then their history to the place in general. And it's a it's a terrific little book. It's not perfect. It's in some ways it's got kind of some rough edges, but it it had those you know those um, primary sources right. uh, interviews with the people who. And, you know the flesh and blood people of that that community that were moved off. So I I leaned on that book, of course, and and used it quite a bit. Um, but for the rest of the, there was a lot of historic research of that 200 years of Métis history uh, centering around the events that led to the battle of so-called Battle of Seven Oaks in 1816, and then sort of bringing us up through. Uh, the 1869 and 1885 Métis resistances, uh, and I, you know, I tried to do, to use the best, most up to date sort of uh, his, historical writing on that, and found some some really good analysis, I think, of uh, of Seven Oaks, and uh, an Environment Canada historian who has written, I think, uh, a very good analysis. Of what happened at Seven Oaks and how it was shifted, the interpretation of it, our hist- history of it changed over the uh, first century. Afterwards, uh, started off in 1816 to 1870 or so as being fairly even-handed and not really blaming either side, not certainly not vilifying the Métis for um, being the so-called victors in that incident of Seven Oaks because 21 settlers died and only one Métis person died. But over time, as the uh, reality of Métis resistance became more real and uh, the colonial forces started to become concerned about what was happening out west here, that history-telling shifted significantly. And this, this historian 
demonstrates that and shows that suddenly it started to be called the massacre at Seven Oaks, and the Métis were depicted as these bloodthirsty people who must be controlled and removed from the land. And that was used especially to good effect right, right after um, Riel's trial and uh, execution in, 18, I think it was November 1885. So, you know, there, I used all kinds of sources, but ones like that were were particularly rich and helpful and I, and they've been out there for a while but I wanted to bring them to a wider audience for people to take a look at at our wider longer history here on on the prairie. Right and and that's a good example too of sort of myth creation and you know how these sorts of things build on themselves and how you know history can be used for political purposes sort of the idea that this was a massacre all of a sudden, and the, the changing narratives that are created to help certain people. Um, yeah. So, so it's, it's interesting that, that you've, you've brought all that in, into the book. And I, I'm sort of wondering, you know, has your, because you've referenced now all of this material and addressed these sorts of issues, has your thinking on this whole thing changed in the process of uh, researching the book and then writing the book? Yeah, I, cer- I certainly think that the discovery for me, the main discovery for me in writing the book and thinking about it was that by the Métis being taken out, you know, losing their hold on Manitoba there at the Selkirk colony that became Winnipeg, A, losing that, and then moving on to the event in 1885 at Batoche and then losing that, losing that place in another resistance, that those aren't just about the Métis being removed from the land or losing their land uh, holdings, right? Because they all scattered after that with the, that whole script system debacle in the in the generation or the generation after that. It wasn't just about that. The thing I guess, thing I, guess I discovered or learned for me, and maybe other people knew this, was that we we all in a way lost uh, an alternative or an option, a way of looking at land governance that was more nuanced and community based. Right, mm-hmm. that that could have been helpful could, as we as we developed our agricultural economy here and our resource extraction economies. If we'd have had uh, a chance to allow that to f- come to full flower in a modern world and modern economy, you know that we lost that as well. That we didn't just it wasn't just that the Métis lost their holds on the land. I think prairie cultures in general have lost that. Um, Wisdom and knowledge. Now, I'm using the word lost, but I want to argue, and I try to at the end of the book, that it isn't gone. It's still there with our indigenous people. It's on at a, at a low burn somewhere, but it's still held in the wisdom of their people and, and their knowledge. And, uh, you, you know, I, I, you hear racist people scoffing at Aboriginal people. Uh, these days, because they're not, you know, they'll point to the, the fact that they drive cars and say, "Well, they're not, they're not any better stewards than the rest of us," or you know, look at the way they use their land. That sort of argument. Uh, but <laughs> that that doesn't matter. That the ethic is still there, and it's something that we still are going to need if we're going to survive this this next hundred years here, facing the big issues that we face as a civilization. And our indigenous people all over the planet are probably the keepers of that wisdom better. And I mean, we have our own roots uh, as European people uh, with that kind of wisdom that we abandoned a long, a long time ago of trying to live in a more communally uh, sustainable way. So 
that's what I think was the discovery for me. Just just the sense that uh, yeah, hey, it wasn't it wasn't just that the Métis lost their land. Uh, they also lost their land tenure system and their land governance systems that could have been helpful for all of us. And maybe we could still, in some way, try to reconstitute that or bring it to the table. And it's a great message and it's a great lesson. And we would encourage people to go find the book again. It's entitled uh, Towards a Prairie Atonement. And you can find some of Trevor's other work, uh, River in a Dry Land, A Prairie Passage. You can also find him, his Grass Notes blog at trevorharriet.blogspot.com, trevorharriet.com for more information about his, his work, at Trevor Harriet on Twitter. And we'll note, too, that you are, for this year, the writer-in-residence at the Regina Public Library. So anybody out in Regina, um, you know, we would Bring by your you, poems. Yeah, we <laughs> encourage you to uh, to participate and and get out there and and really engage with some of this this really tremendous work and, and really important work uh, at, at such a you know important moment uh, in these sorts of issues as they're coming to the fore. Uh, so so we really appreciate you taking the time to join us today, Trevor. All right. Well, I appreciate it too. Thanks, Sean. Thanks. So there you have it, my conversation with Trevor Harriet, And again, we thank him for coming on the show. And we would encourage you to check out Towards a Prairie Atonement, as well as his other works and all of his uh, online digital presence. Uh, some really fascinating material and, and an important discussion that he is engaging in with his work. If you have any questions or comments for the podcast, historyslam at gmail.com, Twitter at Dr. Shawnee Fever. And if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.